So there's an authority crisis in our world right now, isn't there? Our culture has some issues with authority. If we look at it locally, there's all sorts of suspicion of authority. There's also skepticism of authority, mistrust of authority. We look on the world stage and we see the same exact thing. We see abuses of authority. Authority is and is often understood as power. People see authority and it's the person who has the power. This power, unfortunately, in the hands of sinful man, morphs into force. And the one with authority is the one who tells you what to do and can make you do it. And then, as if to be a terrible cherry on top, that force many times becomes violent. This is why we have wars. This is why we have all sorts of things. It's because authority misuses its power and then uses it for violence. So we have every reason in our fallen culture, in our fallen world, to be suspicious of authority, even wary of authority. And that's the exact kind of world that Jesus is walking around in as well. So our first question for you today is, does that suspicion of authority, does that weariness of authority, does that, does that really not trusting authority extend to Jesus Christ? Or is there something different for him? See, remember, Jesus, when he got done with the Sermon on the Mount, all the people that heard what he said said, this guy speaks with authority. This guy speaks differently. And this is what Matthew has been speaking about for weeks now. Matthew is weaving this tapestry of all these different stories saying, Jesus has authority on this, and not just that, but here, and then here, and then everywhere. And we see the responses to this authority. Some submit and obey, others rebel and flee, or they ask Jesus to flee. So where have we been? Well, we started off in Matthew, we saw this is what Jesus taught, and now we're seeing this is what Jesus is doing. We've, we've done the Sermon on the Mount, which gets a lot of press, it gets a lot of publicity, it's very popular and rightly so, because it is Jesus saying, this is how you should be. But we need not miss the fact that while the Sermon on the Mount, chapters 5, 6, and 7 of Matthew, are this grandiose vision of the kingdom, the next three chapters, chapters 8, 9, and 10, are Jesus going, and this is what it looks like. He doesn't just tell you these grand ivory tower views of things. Instead, he goes, this is what it looks like down in the muck. And by the way, I have authority over it all. Jesus is putting his money where his mouth is. Jesus has already been telling, now he's on to the showing. And today, we get the best news possible. We get the news that Jesus has authority to forgive sins. Jesus has authority to forgive sins. There's nothing more clear in this passage. Even the people that Jesus heals don't get to say a word. It's Jesus who does all the speaking. Compare that to last week when it was the demon-possessed men that did all the speaking and Jesus just said one word. Now Jesus is stepping in and saying, here is my word for you. And today that word is, praise be to God, I can forgive your sins. So we're continuing to look at Jesus' authority. Jesus provides physical as well as spiritual healing. 
See, God reigns over disease. We've seen that. We saw that with the healings earlier in chapter 8. We see that he reigns over disasters when he calms the storm. We see when he reigns over the demons and he says, get out, and they obey. But now we also see he is over everything, including our sin. The one thing we can't fix, no one has ever been able to fix. And yet Christ comes and he goes, your sins are forgiven. This is kind of a cool picture because when we think about what Jesus has been doing this entire time, I'm reminded of Revelation chapter 21, which says there will be no mourning, there will be no death, there will be no crying, there will be none of that because the old things have passed away and behold, the new has come. And what Jesus has been doing and Matthew has been pointing out is that Jesus started this back in 33 AD, and it's been going forward ever since. We get this little glimpse, even though it's small, of a man being healed and his sins being forgiven. And praise be to God that that's what we're going to have at the end of time. All of our infirmities will be gone, and our sins will be forgiven if we're in Christ. So he graciously forgives the paralyzed man's sins. He graciously heals the paralyzed man's health. So let's get into it. Verse 1. And getting into the boat, he, that's Jesus, crossed over and came to his own city. So last week we were in the place called the Gardens, Guardians, Gardens, somewhere like that. Uh, this was a place that was a Gentile realm, and Jesus had crossed over in the midst of a storm and is now crossing back. And when it says he goes to his own city, this is the city of Capernaum. This is Jesus' home base where he is for most of the New Testament. Most of the time he's there. See, there's really four cities in Jesus' life, and these four cities all have important aspects of his life. The first one would be Bethlehem. This is where he was born. This was fulfilling prophecies, all those prophecies that he couldn't make himself fulfill because he couldn't make his mom and dad go to Bethlehem, but yet it was a fulfillment of prophecy. The second city, which we have very little about in the Bible, is the city of Nazareth. This is where Jesus spends most of his life, 30 years of his life. Working as a carpenter, sweating, toiling, sleeping, growing. This is Jesus' city of growth. And then we see Capernaum, which is where we're at now. And we'll be here all the way up till about chapter 22 when Jesus is on his mission. He's on his mission in this area. And then finally, the final city is the city of Jerusalem, which is not only the city of his death and his resurrection, but it's his city where he vanquishes sin. And that's the final city that he sees. So Jesus is, is to this city, Capernaum. It's his temporary home. So that kind of sets the stage. Let's move into the next verse. And what we see is we see the faith of the paralytic and his friends. The faith of the paralytic and his friends. Now, if you have been around at all, you'll know there's multiple stories of the Bible. And this one's going to kind of sound a lot like another one because it is that other story. And I'll point that out to you in just a second. Matthew always gives us the streamlined vision of what happened. He doesn't give us every single nook and cranny of the story. Instead, he says, this is what's important, which I kind of like. Because sometimes when you read a history book, you get bogged down in all sorts of little teeny things. Um, it's kind of like what J.R.R. Tolkien did in the first of the Lord of the Rings series, where he's describing the elvish language for like 40 pages, and you're going, please let me stab myself in the eye, because it doesn't make any sense. See, Matthew doesn't want us to miss the point here, and so he doesn't describe the house. He doesn't describe the friends. He doesn't even really describe the faith 
that these guys had. Instead, he says, they've got faith, but let's focus on Jesus. And we see that here. Verse 2, and behold, some people brought to him a paralytic lying on a bed. And when Jesus saw their faith. So this is the first part of verse 2. We see this individual, a paralytic man. What this means, this word paralytic, means that he was at least uh, paralyzed from the waist down, but also this word has the idea that he might have been paralyzed from the neck down. And this first phrase, and behold. Remember last week there were a bunch of beholds. These are surprises. This is Matthew going, hey, this is important. This is all caps with five exclamation points. Make sure you're paying attention to what's going on here. So this story of the paralytic being healed is the exact same story we see in Mark chapter 2 and Luke chapter 5. And you'll all remember this story. This is the one where Jesus is crammed into a house with Pharisees and Sadducees and other teachers of the law, and Jesus is teaching, and the paralytic's friends bring him down, and they can't get in. So what do they do? They climb up onto the roof, they dig a hole in the roof, and they lower him down right into the meeting, right into a Bible study. Been to many Bible studies. I've never seen anything like that happen before. So this is the story. And again, you'll see that Matthew doesn't bring any of that into it. Because that's not the point. Matthew's point is, look to Jesus. Jesus says, it says, Jesus saw their faith. Now, this is not phrased in a way, in any way in the Greek, to say he saw the evidence of their faith. No, instead, he is seeing their faith. Now, I don't exactly know what Matthew means here. Is it that he's able to, to peer into their hearts and see their faith bar, and they're at a 7 and they could be at a 10, or, or is it something else? We aren't told, but what we are told is that Jesus sees to their hearts. Jesus sees exactly what's there. This is another miracle. There's multiple miracles here. He sees the heart of the the paralytic and his friends. He sees the heart of of the scribes. And then he also heals a guy and forgives his sins. So we're looking at four separate miracles here, all of which are done only by the divine. Hebrews 4.13 In talking about God, says, No creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him who they must give account. Psalm 19 says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. He says, Look at my heart and see what's there, and you will see that I'm meditating on you. Jesus looks right to the heart of these men. So what is this faith? What is it? Well, again, it's not about what they've done. It's not about what they've said. It's about Jesus seeing right to it. And again, Matthew is not concerned about what they did. He's concerned about Jesus' response to it. He leaves it intentionally vague because faith looks different for each one of us. But yet, the consistency is that Christ is authoritative. Christ is the answer. Christ is the one. And so Matthew goes, don't get your eyes off of Jesus. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Yes, the friends tore through the roof, but Matthew goes, while as amazing as that is, Jesus is much more. So the next thing we see is we see the surprise of Jesus' words. Jesus does not respond the way you would expect. He doesn't just heal the guy. Instead, he says, because you see in their faith, take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. Take heart, be happy, have courage, the NASB says, Now, does this mean that the paralytic was the one who had faith? Probably. Definitely the friends did. So the paralytic might have just a little teeny embryo of faith there in that he's trusting the the God of the universe, Jesus Christ himself, for his healing. Take heart. Be of good courage. 
This is the Greek word tharsio, which is a subjective form of courage. And the, the way to really understand this is to look at the other word in the Bible for courage, which is talmeo. Talmeo is take courage as well. But it's the kind of courage where you say, come on, grit your teeth, get after it, and master your fear. This is where you put the effort in to get the courage, put the work in to do it. Tharseo, the word that's used here, is not that. Instead, it's the there's absolutely nothing to be afraid of. Jesus doesn't say, come on, buck up, man, you can do it. Instead, he goes, there's no reason to fear. There is nothing to fear. And Jesus is going to show him why. I love what Richard Sibbs, one of the Puritans, says. He says, if we could sin more than he could pardon, then we might have something to be despairing about. Now, some people wrongly think that because Jesus goes right to sins here, that this man had some sort of disease caused by sin. And they've figured out all sorts of diseases that could lead to, to being paraplegic. And that's terrifying that there are that many diseases that could lead you to not being able to use any of your limbs. But that's not what this is about here. See, what happens when we look for some kind of connection between the paralytic's outcome and some sin, we're doing the same thing Job's friends did, which is believing that if something bad happens to you, it's because you did something bad. Even Jesus' disciples were susceptible to this. In John chapter 9, they're walking by and they see a man blind from birth. And they say, Rabbi, who sinned, this man's parents or him? And Jesus goes, neither. It wasn't the sin of the mom and dad. It wasn't the sin of the man. But instead, this infirmity was there so that God could display his works in him. See, this man was doubly paralyzed. He was physically paralyzed and he was spiritually paralyzed. And his only hope, his only hope is to have the touch of Jesus Christ on him. And it's kind of as we're looking at this, this take heart, my son, your sins are forgiven. There's this, this joy in this passage. Jesus goes, I get, to, I get to forgive your sins. I get to do it now instead of just healing his outside. Spurgeon says, there is as much joy in the heart of God when he forgives as there is in the heart of the sinner when he is forgiven. God is as blessed in giving as we are in receiving. And I love that. I love that God goes, yes, I get to forgive. Because we look at God, and a lot of times we look at him, he's like, oh, he's up there and he's wagging his finger. Oh, no, come on. That's not what Jesus is doing here. Jesus is just like, it's almost like the paralytic's not even all the way down, and he goes, I get to forgive your sins. I get to. Now, Jesus knows what's coming. He knows that the cross is coming. It's not a surprise for Jesus. He knows what he's going to have to endure for to, make, to make these sins go away. But look at the joy set before him. He says, I get to forgive your sins. As usual, everything Jesus does is fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, talking about the coming of the Messiah. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame leap like a deer. And the tongue of the mute sing for joy, for waters break forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. This, again, is, is Jesus fulfilling prophecy in that he came in and he healed everyone. We've already seen the leprosy, and we've already seen the healing of a Gentile from a long distance, the stopping of a fever, the stilling of a storm, the exercising of demons, and now this is the pinnacle. Jesus goes, I'm also forgiving your sins. 
Now, Jesus does not start with the pick up your bed and go. Instead, he says, take heart. Now, I wonder if people in the room might have been, wow, that's pretty rude. That's pretty irrelevant. I mean, don't you think you should, you should probably deal with what is obvious to all of us? I even wonder if the paralytic man's like, okay, that's great, but can we do something about my legs too? Because this is the thing I've been living with. We don't know how old this guy is, but we do know it's a constant thing. One author writes, it's an outrageous statement by Jesus, but a calculated outrageous statement, which is what Jesus was well known for. I mean, think about it this way. If you were to go to the ER and you had just been in a car accident and you go to the ER and you've got cranial bleeding and he goes, you know what, this pinky toe, we got to do something. This pinky toe, we've got we've to solve the problem with the pinky toe before we worry about the brain. We would go, let me see, let me see your diploma. Was it an online school? I mean, because we're going to go, this is not the way it should be. But here, Jesus, the great physician, cuts right to the most important thing. He's going to stop the spiritual bleeding before he does anything with the physical bleeding. Because he recognizes, yeah, immediately, that guy's going to feel a lot better. But if he doesn't deal with the spiritual problem, then he's going to have an eternity separated from the God of the universe, which by comparison is vastly more terrible. See, our greatest need, man's greatest need is forgiveness. It's also God's highest achievement. So what does this word forgive mean? What does it even mean? Well, literally, the word means to send away. And this ties right into the Old Testament. Jeremiah 31, 34 says, For I will forgive their iniquity, another word for sin, and I will remember their sins no more. Hebrews quotes this again. For I will be merciful toward their iniquities, and I will remember their sins no more. I love that. God doesn't just go, well, I'm going to put them over here, and if you keep doing it, I'm going to bring it back up. No, he says they are gone. If we're in Christ and we are subjected to him, we are, our sins are gone. When missionaries went to Alaska to talk to the Eskimos, to teach them about the gospel, they wanted to translate it into their own language. However, the Eskimo language does not have a word for forgiveness. So they searched high and low and they found one word. It's a one-word phrase. And this is the word, and I'll put it up on the screen and you guys can help me try to pronounce it. This is what the word is. Issa umagajau jun naramik. Something like that. This is a one word in Eskimo, and it means not able to think about it anymore. And this was the word that they plugged in in the Bible every time it said forgive. It said not able to forget, not able to think about it anymore. So if we used it in this translation, son, your sins will not be thought about anymore by God. What an incredible promise that we have. See, this forgiveness upends the universe. This forgiveness changes everything because it's not just for some, it's for all. For everyone who chooses, God will forget your sins and remove them from you if you are in Christ. Now, we would expect that the religious people of this time would be the ones that would get this. They would go, yes, this is what we've been looking for. But... If you know anything about your Bible, you know anything about the Gospels, the religious ones are the last ones to get it if they ever do at all. So let's look at the response of the scribes. The response of the scribes. Verse 3. And behold, some of the scribes said to themselves, this man is blaspheming. Again, and behold, this is another surprise. 
Now, this is the first time in the Gospel of Matthew that the religious people and Jesus are going to butt heads, and it will not be the last. As a matter of fact, Luke 5, 17, talking about this same situation, the Pharisees were there as well. And these are the religious teachers in Israel at this time. Pharisees were much more organized. The scribes basically were the people that copied down the Bible. They were the teachers of the law. This word blaspheming means to claim to be God or claim traits that are God's only, right? So if you stood up and say, well, I'm omniscient, you would go, yeah, that's blasphemy because that's a trait that only God has. So what is it that he's claiming? He's claiming to forgive sins. Isaiah 43, 25 says, I, I am he who blots out transgressions for my own sake. I will not remember your sins. This is God talking, saying, I am the one who blots out sins. So Jesus is going, I forgive your sins. So what's the big deal here? Why are they upset? A lot of times it kind of looks like the Keystone Cops when we see the Pharisees and the scribes, kind of bumbling idiots. They're not. They know their Bibles. Unfortunately, they miss the one standing in front of them. See, what they're, what they're really upset about is they're upset that Jesus is offering forgiveness with no visible atonement, with no visible price. And this is the problem. Since he's claiming that, he is claiming the right of God. And if you think about how they thought through this, if Mr. Jones is over here and I strike him and then I ask Mr. Smith to forgive Mr. Jones for me, or forgive me for Mr. Jones, it doesn't work. It's got to be person to person. And since Jesus doesn't know this paralytic, and there's no evident relationship here, who, what is Jesus forgiving? But not only is it a sin, but it's all your sins. And Jesus is acting like he's the one that's offended. This implies that Jesus is not ordinary. Jesus is God. And since God is the only one that can forgive sins, these teachers are right in calling him blasphemous unless he is God. So look at Jesus' response. Jesus' response, verse 4, But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Why do you think evil in your hearts? So if the, if the scribes weren't mad already, he just called them evil. All right, So the, don't, don't lose that as well. He said, your thinking is evil. Your thinking is of the devil. And we see this first phrase, this word but. And I love the word but in the Bible because this means stop and take notice. Something is changing here. Jesus is going to show off his divinity again by seeing into the hearts of these scribes he sees the faith he sees the evil thoughts he sees it all verse 5 for which is easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise and walk see talk is cheap it's easy to say oh yeah i forgive all your sins because there's no physical evidence of it and jesus is saying which one's harder guys which one's harder healing someone or just saying that sins are forgiven this was a pretty typical way of arguing. It's arguing from the lesser to the greater. And it would say, well, if I can do this lesser thing, then I can do this greater thing. And that may not make a lot of sense with, with us. If I was to say, I can curl 100 pounds, which means I can definitely curl 1,000 pounds, we'd go, that logic doesn't really flow. So probably a better way to understand this is what Jesus is asking is he's saying, which is harder? Bench pressing an elephant or bench pressing a bus. And you're going, wait, okay, but is it a baby elephant? Because, no, a full grown elephant or a bus, right? I did some number crunching, which means I typed it in Google. Average elephant weighs 10,000 pounds, average bus weighs 30 to 75,000 pounds. That's not the short bus, that's the big bus, right? So, which one, which one of you can say, oh, I can do one of those? 
And the answer is, none of us. So what Jesus does is he goes, look it, I did this one, which is impossible for you. This other one over here that you can't see is just as impossible, and I'm doing that as well. That's what Jesus is saying here, and that's how this argument works. It's not that, oh, well, you know, some of us can heal, but can we forgive sins? No, none of us can heal. None of us can forgive sins. Jesus says, if I can do one, that's proof that I can do the other. Because why? why? How does this make sense? Well, if Jesus is blaspheming, if he is just a man and he's claiming to be God, then God is not going to do what he says when he says, heal him. Right? Now, this is not some charlatan or some huckster who brings somebody that nobody's ever seen and they claim to be blind and then they get healed up on a stage. That's not it at all. This is a person from this city. The paralytic lived in Capernaum. He'd been paralyzed for a long period of time. They brought him before Jesus. This is a supernatural act. This is not a magic trick. This is not an illusion. This is a known person. It would be like us having someone here at our church who we knew well and we knew their infirmity and Jesus stepped in and said, healed. So if that's the case, if this paralytic comes up and he gets up and walks, it means that God hears Jesus. God has empowered Jesus. Jesus. John 9.31 says, we know that God does not listen to sinners, but anyone who worships God and does his will, God listens to him. So if Jesus is claiming to be God and he isn't God, God's not going to do it. But because he is God, God is going to do it. The God of the universe will not allow his name to be profaned, but the God of the universe will hear Jesus Christ. That proves he is who he says he is. Verse 6, But that you may know the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. Matthew does not recount any other healings during this time. I'm sure there were other people that came in, but he chooses this one so that we get the point. The point of this entire section is Jesus has authority over our sins. He can forgive He has totally supplanted the temple and the priesthood. It is gone. It is not the way to approach God and have your sins forgiven. Instead, it's Christ. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. This word authority. This is the word that Jesus claims. As a matter of fact, this word is used throughout the book of Matthew. It's the last noun in the Bible, in the book of Matthew, for Jesus' dignity in Matthew 28, 18. It's the last impression of the Sermon on the Mount, listeners, Matthew 7, 29. It's the first question he gets, by what authority do you heal when he's interrogated in Jerusalem? So Matthew thinks this authority is an important thing. Jesus taught with authority. Jesus demonstrates his authority over diseases, even from a distance. Jesus reveals his authority over storms and over spirits. And here he shows the authority to heal the most grievous disease, which is our sin. And finally, he demonstrates his authority over death by his resurrection. In effect, Jesus is saying, I've forgiven this man, I do claim to be God, and I will do both. This is the moment, this is the, this is the pinnacle of the story. This is the, this is the moment where everybody kind of holds their breath. Because if the man starts moving and stands up, then this Jesus is who he says he is. If the man stays there, Jesus is a blasphemer and we need to go out and stone him. This is the part in the movie with the dramatic pause. Will he do it? 
I'm reminded of probably one of the greatest movies of all time, The Princess Bride. In The Princess Bride, the, the, one of the characters, Wesley, it, it has been mostly dead for a day, and he's laying on the bed, and the, the bad Prince Humperdinck, great name, is standing there, challenging him to a duel, and Wesley goes, maybe I can, maybe I can't stand up. And Humperdinck's like, you're bluffing. And all of a sudden, the music starts to rise, and you start to see him move, and then Wesley stands up with the sword, and he goes, drop your sword, right? Best part. That's a great line. And the, 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 the prince, because he's a coward, drops his sword and sits down, and that's the end. Well, it's sort of the end. Sorry to spoil it for you if you haven't seen it. But that's where we are at this moment, right? Like we're looking at the paralytic, and the paralytic starts to move. Does he, what moves first? Does he kind of test out his feet? Does he wiggle a pinky? What does he do? But he starts to move, and everybody goes, oh. and then they start thinking about it. Whoa, not only is he healed, but that means what Jesus just said is true as well. We are as certain that there is forgiveness because of the gospel and that very essence of the gospel is the pardoning of sin. That's what we see in this forgiveness, in this miracle. So what's the response of the paralytic? Verse 7. It says, he rose and he went home. No words, no high five for Jesus, no anything. I think there's a lot more to this story, and we'll have to look it up on GodTube when we get in heaven. He obeyed. He simply obeyed. Now, what did this look like? This last week, I, I saw a video that I think kind of let us see what this, this man was, was feeling. I, I, I kind of imagine that as he begins to get up, people kind of part, and he gets outside. I see the friends up, up above getting excited and running down. And then what does it look like at that reunion of the four friends and the paralytic? I think it, it looks like what happened with Jack Devlin this week. Jack Devlin is the University of Iowa basketball manager. It was late in the game on Thursday night. It was senior night at the University of Iowa. The game was out of reach. They were, they were winning. And so they handed Jack Devlin, the manager for the team, a basketball. And they said, during this timeout, you're going to go shoot a half-court shot. He got over there. And instead of working in the timeout, the entire team of Iowa turns and watches. And Jack steps up and shoots the ball and misses the first one. Then does it again and Swish, the Hawkeye players, you would have thought they'd have won the national title. They sprinted onto the court. They were jumping up and down, and they were hugging, and Jack is crying his eyes out. The head coach, who's known for being very gruff, goes up and chest bumps him and gives him a big hug. The public address announcer goes, a basket by Jack Devlin, and the crowd cheers. This was a lifelong dream of Jack to be able to make a basket in that gym with fans watching. See, Jack is a member of the REACH program, which is realizing educational and career hopes for those people who have intellectual, cognitive, and learning disabilities. As a matter of fact, he had a form of Down syndrome. And this was his dream. And you should have seen him from that point on. There was a smile on his face that did not leave the rest of the game. He would hug anyone who would hug him as tears streamed down his face. Can you imagine, though, what it would have been like to be with those friends in the paralytic at that point? How much joy. I mean, there was definitely jumping. Look what I can do. 
I mean, they were, there was excitement. But here's the thing that I wonder. What did the paralytic think each time he used his feet from that point forward in the rest of his life? Every time he walked, every time he jumped, yes, even when he stepped on the Legos in the middle of the night and hurts his toes, did he stop and go, yes, I have legs? Or did he go to the next stage, which is, oh, that means Jesus is who he says he is. That means my sins are forgiven. And then what's his response there? Because honestly, our response to our sins being forgiven should be like Jack Devlin. We should be jumping and high-fiving. We should be tears streaming down our faces mixed with a big, huge smile and hugging everyone. Yes, hugging everyone because we are forgiven. How is that going to inform what we do here next at the end of the service? We, we, we craft our services based around creation, fall, redemption, and then this res- restoration at the end. So the songs we're going to be singing as the service ends today are about the things that we get if we're forgiven, if we're in Christ. Is there going to be joy on your face? It's hard to tell with masks on, isn't it? But let's show it with our eyes. Let's show it with our singing out because this joy is for all of us if we're in Christ. Unfortunately, the crowds miss it. The crowds miss it. Let's look at the response of the crowds. When the crowds saw it, they were afraid, and they glorified God who had given such authority to men. So the first thing we see is that they're afraid. That's probably more of an awe. They were kind of in awe of it. And it does say they glorify God, which means they praise him, and they say, okay, God, that was awesome. But then they miss the next point, which is they miss that this is God incarnate. They say, well, that's pretty crazy that God gave this power to a man to heal somebody. They missed the forgiveness part. See, they did not get it. There's no sign of trust or faith or amazement. Pastor Tim in our preaching meeting said, giving Jesus a standing ovation is not the same as trusting in Jesus. See, the scribes and the crowds both miss it for different reasons. The scribes see that he's claiming to be God and go, it can't be. The crowds go, wow, what an amazing man. They still miss the point. In fact, he's both. We need to have that faith because that's all that Jesus is looking for here. He's looking for faith in him. And their response was not in faith. They were wowed by Jesus, but they didn't submit. Only our deepest needs be met and taken care of when we express our faith in him. So we see there's four sets of people here. And there are the four ways to respond to the fact that Jesus is God. We've got the scribes. These are the religious leaders. They're angry. They're argumentative. They're threatening. They hold their religion up higher than they hold Christ. See, the question is, is Jesus can heal a man of his paralysis, physical paralysis, but can, will the religious people allow Jesus to heal their spiritual paralysis? The scribes are no less dependent on Jesus than the paralytic. The difference is, is that they let their learning, their status, their position get in the way. Don't let that get in the way of following Christ today. How about the crowds? The crowds were fearful. They were awestruck. They were amazed. They even had close proximity. They followed Jesus around and still didn't get it, that he is the source. He is the one they need to trust in. Put your faith and your trust in him. How about the friends? Think about these friends for a second. I know Matthew doesn't doesn't spend a lot of time on it, but these friends were willing to take time and bring their friend to Jesus to be healed. 
willing to get them and take them to this place of worship. I'm reminded of the phrase from Field of Dreams that says, if you build it, they will come. That's not what Christianity is about. We don't build buildings and they just bring people in. No, that's our job. So are we going to be like the friends? If you've experienced that joy of having your sins forgiven, is there anything worse than to hoard it for yourself? People won't come to church because there's a church building here. Because guess what? They're all over the place, and that's not why people come. People come because people bring people to church. Trusting in Jesus. Do we trust him enough to go to great measures to reach our friends? And then finally, the paralytic. And some of us are here. We need to obey and submit. The paralytic didn't didn't say, I need to do this or I need to do that. He just obeyed immediately. And I tell you what, he was leaping and jumping and praising the Lord the rest of his days because his spiritual and his physical paralysis had been healed. So today, accept Christ's forgiveness, submit to his authority, obey his word, and bring others so that they can share in the joy that we have. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, as we move into this time of communion and we move into this time where we get to assess in our lives where we are, I pray, Lord, that you would help us see clearly what we need to do. Maybe we need to submit for the first time and say, Lord, you are God incarnate. You are God, and you forgive sins. Maybe we need to submit again, submit anew, And not be saved again, Lord, but to just renew the fact that, Lord, we have put other things in the way of you. Our trust is waning, so Lord, please strengthen that in us. And Lord, maybe we're here and we don't know you. Maybe we we need to have that shown to you. So Lord, nothing I can say, nothing we can sing can do that, but Lord, we know that you can do that in the hearts of each and every person here. So Lord, I pray that you would stir that up in us now. In Jesus' name, amen.